welcome to Small World Podcast. This is Leanne Davidson. And I'm Corey O'Flanagan. And today's guest's name is Piper. Sadly, I had to sit this one out. Yeah, unfortunately, we can't always be in the same place at the same time, can we? Unfortunately, some of us have to work to save the upcoming trips. So. Pity the fools. Yeah. I really do. Um, yeah, so I got to speak with Piper while I was still in Denver and had a really amazing, just fascinating conversation with her. She's seen a lot and done a lot and recently um, battled and survived dengue fever, which was just amazing to hear about. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I didn't realize dengue was so bad. Um, it's pretty cool for me because I got to listen to this as an audience member. Um, but yeah, it was super interesting. I wish I was there, but she's got some wild stories to share. Yeah, guys, we think you're really going to like it, so sit back and enjoy Piper. So one of the things, I just kind of started looking mm-hmm. through your page and just trying to learn yeah. a little bit because you're the first person I've interviewed that I didn't know. Oh, okay. Which is kind of fun. That's fun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So one of the things that I found was super interesting was on your website, how you talk about your, how, how it all started for you in this photo of your mom. Yeah. Tell me about that. Um, so my mom, she actually owns a gap year program. So she places kids and adults on gap year programs all over in the, the world. States. It, no, yeah, so she reach out to high school kids and then place them on gap year programs all over the world. And lately, I've been going places and then she's been following me. So i just like, so I went to Nepal and six months later, my mom's going to the exact same place <laughs> with the exact same program that same I was itinerary? shooting with and getting to know the same people. And she's just, so now it's flip-flopped. But, um, Are you okay with that or does that annoy you? Um, I'm fine with it because then, you know, it it brings us together because we have something in common. You can share that experience. And it, it is, there's a lot of people that need that. Oh, well they did it. They survived. I guess I can go. Yeah. And (laughs) my mom, like, I think for her, it's a lot of me saying I did this you're totally capable of doing something similar. She needs the encouragement of me telling her she's not too old. Okay. You know, she's 63, I think. And she just has been trekking the way that I have been the past couple of years. So I think a lot of it has to do with me encouraging her Mm -hmm. to take on those risks and being, and giving her an excuse to check out a new program that she could send kids on potentially um and yeah so that photograph of my mom it was always around the photograph I might add is my mom when she was about 25 and she's sitting in the middle of an African village with two kids um and my mom just to give you a little background always loved to travel but joined the Peace Corps in 1980, I believe, mm-hmm. and was there from 80 to 83 for three years in this very remote village in the Casamance re- region of Senegal. Wow. Um, in the I, early 80s. In the early 80s. Wow. So she was building latrines. She was like digging wells, getting to know all the people. She spoke French fluently, but in mm. the Casamance region, um, most of all the people in her village either spoke a native language of Jola or Wolof. So my mom learned both and speaks both fluently now. 
Um, and the reason I know all of this is because after I graduated college early and wanted to go to Africa to be like my mom. Yeah. <laughs> and, and now it's flipped. Yeah. It's <laughs> kind of flipped. Um, and she, she took me back to her village before we went and explored Cape Town together. And then she left and I stayed in Cape Town. But it was very interesting. We flew into Dakar. We took a 22-hour bush taxi ride into the middle of nowhere. Um, you know, everyone stops a million times because it's very Islamic, so they pray. Okay. So they'll be driving, and everyone will stop and get out and pray. Or uh, one guy had to stop and, you know, meet a witch doctor because <laughs> his back hurt. That was an experience. And then you've got, like, other people that need to buy supplies for the village and we're the only car coming in. Yeah. So it just takes forever to get there. And it's hot and dusty and you go through 8 million customs it, and it was the first time I'd really traveled in a third world country and to this day beyond India like Senegal was maybe the port like not Dakar because it has a very affluent part of yeah. Dakar but outside of the capital it is extremely poor Yeah, and it was very very eye opening and we got to her village and I was maybe like the sixth or seventh white person they'd ever seen wow. and all the kids had really never seen white people before so what an experience it, that would be i haven't ever run into anything like that it was it was really really interesting the thing that was really hard for my mom was she had built up all these programs like the infirmary and the um these latrines and these wells and nobody had kept them up so there was no medicine. I think two people died while we were there. Wow. One had a seizure, fell, hit his head, but there's no ambulances. It's really a lesson in how how the majority of the world lives because yeah. the majority of the world is not a first world country. Well, isn't that one of the things that you get is this, when you go somewhere like that, you get this perspective. Um, I think for me, it taught me appreciation more so than analyzing first world versus third world. For my entire life, my mom had always said to me, the classic, there are starving children in Africa. You have to eat everything on your plate. Do not waste food. Recycle. Granted, you should know I'm from Boulder, so this is how oh. privileged whites in Boulder <laughs> live and talk. Um, I, uh, pretty much, yeah, I, you know, from the very get-go, I, I, my mom has always said, like, you are so lucky and kind of drilled that into all four of her kids' mm -hmm. heads. But it wasn't really until I, I went to her village that I understood what that meant. And I would not have been able to get there or communicate with anyone because they all speak okay. a tribal so she language. Helped you get in there. Yeah. That's that's a pretty cool way to like get exposed to it though, I think. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Um, and I love that's still like maybe one of my favorite experiences because it's rare that you have someone who has that connection with a place. Um, and my mom had her her 
house mom or the woman that basically housed her throughout the 80s yeah. was still there. Um, and she, her name's Satu. And my mom just has this incredible relationship with her. And it was really, really fun to watch them interact and, you know, have that relationship. And they had kids in the village named after my mom as well. So that was just a really, really interesting thing to see. Yeah. It was that influential, especially at that time. Yeah. And they, I mean, my mom didn't want to leave. You're only supposed to be in the Peace Corps for a year and a half. So she did two rounds of it. Um, And my grandparents were like, why are you staying? (laughs) We don't understand. But I think my mom was the quintessential, you know, flower child in Colorado in the 70s and just into the yeah. 80s kind of went with it. Yeah. Um, did you have any... How old were you for this? I was 21. 21. Mm-hmm. And did you have any preconceptions? Any research? Did you just go in with your mom's stories and that was it? That was it. I had no idea what so I was the, in the for. So the culture shock and all that probably came on pretty strong. It, it, You know, culture shock didn't happen when I went there. Yeah. It was coming home okay. um, because we went from the village where I think if I'm right, we spent 10 days to two weeks there. Uh-huh. And then we flew to South Africa and we did some beautiful touristy things because my mom was there. And then she left me in South Africa um, and I worked at an HIV orphanage um, in the townships. for six months and that experience was culture shock because the whites can't live in the townships it's extremely dangerous I mean you could like any you absolutely could it's just the volunteer program I was with wouldn't allow you to you had a designated driver to drive you into the townships the townships in South Africa are completely blocked off the whites have built cement walls from the airport around the highway so that you can't even see them. Unbelievable. It's really insane. But you were just telling me this is your favorite place in the world. It is. And that's that's the craziest part. Cape Town is the most beautiful city in the world. It has the, like, all of my friends, granted, well, the majority of my friends there were white. Yeah. Because there's no way, like, it. that is such an interesting dynamic I would tell people what I was doing there in the circles of locals that I met and yeah. became my my core group of friends and they would be they would say to me, you know, oh my gosh, you go into Kailicha like that is so dangerous. Nobody goes there. I can't believe that. And yes, it is dangerous, um but at the same time it was just so segregated. I've never been somewhere that is just so segregated. Literally um, black and white. Literally black and white because they moved all of the blacks out of where the white area yeah. in the 50s and 60s and basically pushed them out of their homes so without any money. And then if they and all of the blacks worked for white so they'd have to bus miles back into town which took up all of their money. And they had no real foundation of where to stay. They were just put in this area by the white government and said, okay, that's your home. We, the whites get this beautiful beach and these incredible mountains. And hey, here's 
you know, here's some land, do what you can with it. And when you are put in a situation where you have no money, a lot of people don't have um, a very good education. So it's hard Mm -hmm. for them to, you know, make money more or less and then move up on the socioeconomic exactly absolutely and i mean with all the prejudice that is still very very current there um i found i found it to be the most fascinating place that i've ever lived the most culturally diverse going back and forth from working every day with the black area and then being bused home and living with the whites and you know i was 21 so of course i was going out to bars i was partying i was living that Cape Town life and then I, you know, go and educate about HIV and the AIDS virus and how to prevent it and um, kind of going against these cultural myths where, you know, men are circumcised to become men and have voting privileges when they're 16 years old in the village. But the medicine man that does that never cleans the knife. And so... AIDS is transmitted very, very frequently among young males in that way. And this is just tradition. And it's tradition. And if you get this, if you flinch or cry or blink during that process and you're fully awake standing in a line, then you won't get your voting privileges and you're not considered a male or a man in the village. Uh, yeah. And they shun you. Oh my God. <laughs> and what's amazing to me is this is your first exposure to travel. Yeah. And this is, this just must be going for almost anywhere else so easy. <laughs> well, to be clear, my first experience with travel, I got a scholarship to study oil painting in Rome. Okay. So I had done a lot. Third world I, travel, we'll say. I've, that. Yes. Okay. Third world, I had done Europe yeah. prior to this. And I felt pretty independent and confident okay to in be being on able my own. to do it. Yeah. And I think that's a big, especially for a girl. Mm hmm. I'm starting to learn and I've, it's something that's almost subconscious, but when it gets brought to the surface of how different it is for you and me to go on a trip to the same spot and the things that you're thinking about versus me just being like, taxi. Yep. <laughs> it's really just fascinating. I, I think, but yeah, I think that getting into that sort of travel experience so early must make you going to Nepal or India a... I mean, it's not going to be easy by any mind, anything, but you're, you're, you're more easily accepting of what you might run into. I'm not as, I'm not as like, I feel like Americans can go to a place and be like, oh, the bus isn't on time. I kind of go to a place and I'm like, well, I'm here. I'll just wait till it comes. It might come because <laughs> It might. And you don't know. And then the flip side of that is, I'm, I always made fun of my parents and I don't wear these by any means, yeah. but you remember the like little wallets people, tourists wear under their shirts, oh, yeah. like the straps. I've never done that. I still won't do that. But along those lines, I always made fun of my parents being like, <laughs> you're not going to get pickpocketed. You look really dumb. Why are you doing that? And <laughs> I found, I still don't use those to preface this, but my, I have a very heightened awareness um, of where my belongings are, who I'm interacting with, who I'm sitting next to, how close they are to my things. Um, And as a woman, you know, I went to the, um, I did go to Zambia and Zimbabwe and Botswana, Uganda, Tanzania, Rwanda, and Kenya all by myself after that. And... 
I had some experiences there that were absolutely terrifying being a woman on my own. So (laughs) my awareness um, and what you were talking about in terms of like differences between when you travel as a male and when I travel as a female, I'm thinking about not like the movie Taken more or less, but I did see, you know, a woman get raped in Zambia. Like I saw the end of it at Victoria Falls because it's on the edge of the border of Zambia and Zimbabwe. And I saw a woman who I think, I shouldn't say I saw it. I think this is what happened. Pretty sure that she subjected herself to being raped in order to cross the border because it was with a border guard and I was walking along. I saw her walk really quickly past me. She looked upset and then I saw the border guard buttoning his pants and I have never ever turned so quickly and walked away and averted my eyes and tried to find anyone that looked like me at all in that circumstance. I can't imagine what would be going through you at that point. I was just scared. I mean, I've been in some really (laughs) crazy situations (laughs) traveling. And this is something else that's interesting to me, too, is that despite that, you're still, the curiosity remains. Yeah. Because you don't get scared off. And I find that for people who have this travel bug, it, it makes you more of a... I don't know, you gravitate towards that almost. You're like, I'm not looking for that experience because that scared the shit out of me. But <laughs> I'm, I'm more just like, this is real life stuff happening and I could I could stay home in my bubble, but I'm going to choose not to. And by choosing not to, I know that there's an opportunity for me to be exposed to some really bad stuff. But I've, I, I just think the pros are always going to outweigh the cons. I agree. And I, you know, in that same day, I was at Victoria Falls and Mm -hmm. went bungee jumping in the middle of two waterfalls and (laughs) had like a blast. That's the Libra in me kicking in being like, it's balance. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, you, you do the wonderful things and the spontaneous things. And then those experiences, I think for me, open your eyes and not only open your eyes abroad, but like that stuff is a daily occurrence in the United States as well. So it kind of broadens your opinion of like what's going on at home Mm -hmm. and that your comfort zone at home can differ drastically going four streets over. Well, it can be really falsified too. You Mm -hmm. might think you're in a comfort zone, but the reality is anything could happen at any point in time. That's true. You're just in a more familiar place, so you don't think about it. Yeah. Um, I think one of the... um, interesting things and why Ryan connected us was the photography. Yeah. So, and I want to get into that, but first I want to say we were supposed to do this like three weeks ago and (laughs) you were just in Nepal and got dengue. I did get sick. They think it was the second time actually that I've had dengue. Did you know you had it the first time? No. They say it's like a flu. (laughs) That's risky. So I, you know, it was my second time in Nepal. And, and it wasn't Nepal that you got it, for sure. Yep. Because in my head, this is too high elevation, too high uh, latitude. It's called climate change. Unbelievable. It's <laughs> pushing up, huh? Yep. Because it, it, was, it was non-existent, what, maybe 10 years ago there? I think the first case was in, like, 2002. Wow. So, like, not even. It is not... That's why everyone was so... Well, when I got it, everyone was like, wow, I... Nepal is high in elevation. 
That's true in the Himalayas, but it also goes straight into India. Yep. And it's, you know, there are tropical areas of Nepal. Yeah. And with climate change, dengue is going to spread to more tropic areas. And that's an unfortunate part. It's but starting it's to come around Florida. I was just reading about Yeah. That. People in Florida are starting to get it. And um, I did... I got it in Pokhara, I'm pretty sure, because the only mosquito bites I got were in the village in Batase, where I was working with a school um, for children who had lost their parents in the earthquake from yeah. 2015. Um, or after I trekked to base camp of Annapurna, and then we stopped in Pokhara, and these female mosquitoes, you know, they... Uh, basically frequent large bodies of lying water, like flat, placid mm -hmm. water. And, of course, I went on a boat ride, <laughs> a, like a rowboat ride on very flat water in a humid, a humid climate where, you know, I could just get dengue. And then I did that my last, second to last day in Nepal. And then I had two days of travel and then I was back a day and a half, and then I got sick. And the incubation period for it is about three to 10 days. Um, and it hit me like at 11.30 in the morning. I was at work, I felt totally fine. And then I had a searing knives in your eyes, headache behind, oh like, like headache right behind your eyes. And my neck started to hurt, and I was like, did I sleep on my neck wrong? And maybe I have a migraine from jet lag and all of these things. And then I got dizzy and I threw up. And at that point, I was questioning whether I could drive myself yeah. back home from work. That night, I got a fever of 104. I sweat through like four t-shirts. And it kind of progressed from there. They call it break bone fever because you feel like every bone in your body is breaking. On top of that, I, that headache just behind your eyes is, it never went away. Yeah. No matter how much Advil, ibuprofen, Tylenol I took, it was constant. And so I got sick Tuesday, Friday, I was in tears because the headache was so you, bad. You lasted that long with your fever? Yep. <laughs> Before you went in? Uh-huh. <laughs> I did. I am, my parents and my roommate were like, you need to go to the hospital. <laughs> oh, fine. It's going to pass. I was, because then I started, I went to my general practitioner twice in that week. And the first time she was like, think she has malaria. Let's draw blood. And the CDC, by the way, they say they take three to four days to get test results back. I got my test results back for dengue 12 days later. Wow. Um, but yeah, I waited. So you were pretty much three years. I was through. Well, I was I was at the very end of it. Wow. And I. So they were testing for everything else in the meantime. Yeah, they they threw every test at me. Friday, I went into the hospital. My liver looked really messed up to the ER doc, and he was like, "Well, you've been in a foreign country. I'm not letting you go." They thought I had got back, or viral meningitis Were you because of my neck. In the hospital at all? Mm -hmm. Everyone had to wear a mask that came in to see me. <laughs> oh my God. It was it was really insane. And you know the movie ET. Yeah, it felt like that. Literally, I was the dengue girl. I think I was the first case they've had in that hospital since 2009 Unreal. of dengue fever. 
And everyone just comes in just to like see. Oh, it was like, like residents who were point. podiatrists <laughs> are coming in and they're like, can I listen to your breathing? I'm like, you're a podiatrist. I have an infectious disease that I'm trying like to, to get rid of. But yeah. I think I had every single type of doctor. One guy came in and he was like, yeah, I'm studying sports medicine. I'm like, why are you Great. here? So happy for you. So happy for you. But cool. So they just wanted to come see me. But what ended up happening is the first time you get dengue, it's like a flu. The second yeah. time it can turn into a hemorrhagic Hem- I'm not saying that word correctly, hemorrhagic fever. And what happened with me is my system was fighting it off so hard that I ended up going into septic shock, which is when your white blood cells can't target what the virus is mm-hmm. and they turn on your organs. So my white blood cells started attacking my lungs, which put me into respiratory failure and potential liver failure because my liver was already really elevated um, and my lungs started filling with fluid. So they put me on a ventilator and put me out on fentanyl. I don't remember five days of my life, but I do have pictures. So I know that's what happened. (laughs) Um, And my blood pressure dropped to like 30. So, and it's for those of you who don't know, your blood pressure is never supposed to drop below 60. And so they plugged me with like 45 liters of water to make my blood flow to my heart and the rest of my organs. So I didn't go into full on organ failure. And that picture of me is really cute. I look like I went through Willy Wonka's like blueberry machine or whatever it is. And yeah, so I ended up, you know, turning the corner but my parents like they were told that they needed to prepare to say goodbye to me that I had a 40 to 50 percent chance of living did they tell you I mean I was on fentanyl I don't remember anything like I that my mom is astounded because apparently I was like lucid and was asking questions and asking for my phone but I I have zero recollection of any of that Hmm. which is such a weird thing to kind of think that you don't remember you know they came in and they walked me through the hallway when I was on all these machines like uh, the physical therapist did I don't I have pictures of I don't remember doing that it's like a blackout when you're drunk it's borderline coma or something yeah it's really really weird do you remember any of your dreams oh I had the one that repeated twice and it was the I, my mom was like, do you have to give her fentanyl? That's like very addictive. Exactly. People get, you know, very addicted to this. Prince, Tom Petty. We've got a lot of stuff a going on A whole lot of people. I will never be one of those people because I like being in control. Yeah. And those dreams were terrifying. It was like I was trapped on an island at a carnival in a black tunnel and I had to walk to the top and there was like big clown and a big teddy bear. My friend Courtney, who was like a massive bo- bobblehead doll, like all these giant figures. And there were neon snowboarders I, who I had to avoid hitting what? while I was walking to the top of this black tunnel. And then I came back and I had gotten there with like a bunch of, this is actually really interesting. Mm-hmm. I'd love to know what a dream therapist says, but I had gotten into this carnival by boat 
And I had like parked my boat with a guy who took, it was like a boat valet. I have no idea why I did that. Yeah. (laughs) And I was trying to get my keys, my boat back to get off this crazy carnival, terrifying island. And the guy was like, well, I need to see those papers you have there. And it was like my passport, my credit cards, all these things I used to travel with. And I gave it to him and he just like threw it all of the documents with a bunch of other massive pile of documents. And then he was like, sorry, you're gonna have to stay here. I can't find what I need. Wow. Like it had been lost within everyone else's documents and I was stuck on this Yeah, I might crazy get that and try and sort it out a little bit. There's a lot to unpack in there. I know. I was like <laughs> Especially the state that you were in too. I know. <laughs> My friends were like, Oh, it was, it was like you were stuck in being sick and you couldn't get out. <laughs> And I was like, but why was I on a carnival island that was super creepy? Like, mm-hmm. I've been months since I saw us. <laughs> I shouldn't be in a creepy <laughs> carnival. <laughs> like, so what's interesting to me is you've got your first experience traveling is you going from this, in this majorly segregated area mm-hmm. and seeing a lot of, a lot of good, ton of good, but a lot of bad too. And then you've continued traveling because you've obviously had a ton of good experiences. Um, and then you get hit with this dengue. And mm-hmm. I imagine that you're still like, where am I going next? I am. <laughs> I, I think in the hospital, because I, I was planning on going back to Nepal. I have, you'll love Nepal when you go. It's just the most incredible country. Um, but I was going to go back because my mom sponsors a little girl named Carmu. Um, to go to school there. Mm -hmm. Carmu lost her mom in the earthquake and she has four brothers and sisters and her dad couldn't afford to take care of all the children. So her and her sister stay at this hostel um, and my mom pays for her to go to school every year um, and for clothing and food and living. And I really bonded with her and just absolutely love this little girl. And I told her, this breaks my heart. I told her, I was like, I'm going to come back at Christmas and I'm going to come see you. And now I just, I don't know if my heart's in it to go back to Nepal, which is unfortunate. Might need some time to heal that wound. Yeah. I just, I feel a little, like I need a little bit more time. Um, saving grace. My mom might go back, which is great. Okay. Um, but I, I still really want to, I want to go to Vietnam. I want to do Cambodia, Laos. I've, I really want to see those parts of Southeast Asia because, man, it is incredibly beautiful. And I felt like I was just getting into Asia Mm -hmm. where I've done South America and Africa and Europe. Um, So that was kind of my next plan. Does it just, is it just Nepal or does it scare you from going to the other ones or anywhere that dengue is prevalent? I mean, it should. Because if I get it again, like, had I been in Nepal, I would have died. Well, it's like the saving grace that it harbors. Yeah. Which is pretty amazing. I would Because I agree, like, where would you have gone for your... I don't even... You would have had to take, like, a heli... They would have had to helicopter you Mm -hmm. somewhere major, like, to Kathmandu or something. They would have, but even in Kathmandu, I don't think they have ventilators. I think I would have actually died. Like, it is... I've been to a hospital in Kathmandu. It's, It's not the cleanest nor the most advanced and the fact that doctors in America were like we don't know if we can save her yeah. that gives me an interesting yeah 
but I don't know. I, it, my mom just kept saying, thank God you came home. Like, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Oh, my God. So I want to get into the photography, but I have one more question. For you, it doesn't scare you from traveling. Why shouldn't experiences like that scare someone else? I mean, before, and this wasn't on the podcast, you saw my roommate come in, and she had seen me in the hospital and the ventilator and everything, and... We were talking about dengue briefly. Yeah. And she said, no, she can't travel anywhere with dengue. But the thing is, I I think this is the thing for me. There was a point in the hospital before they put me on the ventilator and they said, we have to wait for your mom. This could be the last time that you see her. Like, this is how sick I was. They were not joking around. They were like... Was that your first... Did you know that? Maybe even subconsciously, but hearing it was like jaw-dropping? No. I was in so much pain, A, that I was like, put me out. I want to... <laughs> Pull the fuck. <laughs> like, I'm done living. It's <laughs> um, good that you got to that point of acceptance. I really had gotten to that point where I was like, I am in so much pain. I will... I don't care if I pass away because I won't be in pain anymore. Yeah. And that I, I don't think that's a very common feeling for a lot of people, but because I had gotten to that place when they said that to me, I kind of thought about it and I was like, I'm okay if I die right now. I've done a lot in my life. I feel like I've lived a very full life. Mm-hmm. And if this is what takes me out I'm I'm okay with it. Like I feel I, like I that felt, being healthier now. Um, Yeah. I yeah. still do. I still do. I feel like had I gone, I, I would have been at peace with it, yeah. um, which is also really not normal thought that a normal person has. No, but... it's kind of okay to bring yourself to that and, and realize, because I think that that can get you to a point of, well, I'm not there yet, so what else do I need to do to get myself mm-hmm. there? And you can start asking some bigger questions rather than just waking up and going to work every day. Yep. And, I mean, it brings that about... But I think my that also drives me to go back to these places mm-hmm. because I know, like, hey, yes, something horrible could happen to me. I need to take precautions, obviously. But if that's what takes me out, I'm I'm okay with it, mm-hmm. you know, because it was worth the risk. Travel for me, at least, is worth the risk. It's it's what I love. It really is what drives me, yeah. even though I've got you know a normal four, seven to four job here in Colorado that thank God I have because I have health insurance. Um, but I, I definitely think that's what keeps me going. And I always have said that. Good. So, well then obviously on the side, you've got your photography stuff. Mm -hmm. It seems to be a pretty big part of what you do while you travel. It's a huge part. I've never, it started in Africa. Does that photo of your mom tie into it at all? No, it's interesting. Actually, photography ties into travel really, really closely because the first time I ever went abroad on my own, I went to Rome and I had an oil painting scholarship. I've always been artistic and I've always painted people. And I took photo as my elective and I spent far more time in the darkroom and booking trips to different countries around Europe to take more photographs than I did painting. (laughs) (laughs) 
at all. Um, Is it mostly portraits and people that you're interested in? I, now, when I started, it was landscape, it was structures, architecture, okay. and then I just found people's faces to be so interesting because I think that an expression can tell tell you more about someone's story than you know a picture of a mountain. And granted, mm-hmm. if you ever go to my website, I shoot a lot of mountains. Yeah, you have to go to prints to kind of see pictures of people, but. Um, that is what I enjoy to shoot the most. It's just difficult to shoot people in different countries unless you develop a pre-established relationship. You need to be there for a while and be yeah. someone that they see. As a friend and not threatening and not yeah. using them to, you know, make a dollar or, like, kind of abuse their circumstances I think that the hard way or do you just know kind of intuitively? I think intuitively. Um, and also I think there's something to be said with when you visit people who don't have a lot, um, they'll do one of two things. Um, and especially in cities, Mm -hmm. if you look different than them, if you're clearly someone who's not from the country, and you have photography gear like I have, and you shoot their photo, they're gonna ask you for money. For sure. Um, And you should give it to them because technically, wherever you end up using that photo, like they know the system, or they kind of will shy away from you. I, I feel sometimes they, not when I shoot, but I have had this feeling before of, when I take a picture, am I like showing off their circumstances and how much, you know, the comparison between it. And I never think that in my head, but I feel it intuitively. Like they're kind of assuming that I'm, I don't know, like looking at an animal in a zoo type of, it's the same feeling that that you get. And that's what makes it so difficult. And that's why I try and stay in places long enough and develop relationships to the point where taking a picture is not, it's, it's, it doesn't have that connotation. Yeah. 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 You kind of have to be able to become a part of the lifestyle that they're living so that it's not an ordinary for you to be sitting there with your camera and just Mm -hmm. like, just captured that. Exactly. Because otherwise if it's just, you get off a tour bus and start taking pictures of like the kids and whoever's walking around. Yeah. That's probably what they're more used to. They probably actually mm-hmm. have a much more of a respect and willingness to work with you. Yeah. But you, I, I would imagine that you want to capture them in their most natural state. And if mm-hmm. you're in a area where you're the seventh white person that someone has seen, mm-hmm. that's going to be really hard to, for them to feel natural around you. Yeah. So you've got to give it some time. Exactly. And there's also something to be said for documentary photographs. Very rarely does the person go, can I take that photo of you? You know, because then people freeze up. That even happens Mm -hmm. anywhere you go. So you kind of have to develop that relationship to take the photo that they don't know that you're taking without it being so obvious. Mm -hmm. Um, You have to be a fly on the wall for a little while. And I think patience is the most difficult part of doing that. Yeah. And, like, developing those relationships. It's like waiting for that shot. Mm-hmm. You may not get a lot of them, but you may get the shot, you know? Yeah. So. Well, I've seen it. It's really good. 
Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Where can people find it? Um, my website is, well, my name's Piper, by the way. I don't know. <laughs> I'll intro <laughs> we <even> intro. <laughs> um, but it's wherepiperwanders.com. Um, I have been very bad about blogging. I have several places I still need to blog about. Um, Argentina and Peru and Nepal and India and all these things. But uh, I will get to it as soon as I finish editing these photos <laughs> that I took in my last Nepal trip. There's only so much that you can do. I know. I <laughs> am trying to get better at it. I was like fully committed and I was going to do a year of traveling actually. And then I just, I think life sometimes happens and you get sidetracked. Yeah. Um, but getting back on track is the important thing. And I, what I've learned is, you know, taking care of yourself should be the number one yeah. priority in all of that. What's, do you have any thoughts of where the next spot might be? I, well, first of all, my parents want, I am 31 years old and my parents, now that I've had dengue are like, no, you can't go here. You can't go here. <laughs> can't go here. And I'm like, well, I'm paying for it. I'm always not listen to you. Yeah. You know, my dad's like, don't go to Africa by yourself and backpack. And well, I was 21 and I said, that's funny. Yeah. Watch me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think the next place for me is Vietnam. Okay. I really do feel strongly about that. I've heard it's incredible. I'm fascinated by it. Um, and it's really, really high on my list. I like it. Yeah. Thank you so much. No problem. Happy to do it. It was so much fun. Good. So what did we learn there? Cover up when you are in Nepal. Yeah, I guess we should, huh? <laughs> um, and thank you very much, Piper. That was super interesting. You can check out Piper's travel photography at wherepiperwonders.com or you can check out her Instagram with the same name, wherepiperwonders. Guys, we are on a mission to continue to try and get better. So if you've got comments, questions, suggestions, anything like that, feel free to send them to us on our Instagram. You can email us, smallworldspodcast at gmail.com or go on our website and leave us a message there. And thank you for listening. If you liked us, please tell your friends. And until next time.